dummies. It's true. Hey, uh, many years ago, a, a man was sitting in one of those uh, bars, you know, at the top of a skyscraper like the Sky Lounge, and it was obvious that he had had a, a really bad day. Another fellow uh, saw him there and tried to cheer him up, really annoyed the grumpy one. But after a while, he entered into the conversation. He said, um, hey, did you know that sometimes the wind between these skyscrapers it creates such a, a, an updraft? Uh, the wind is so strong, it creates an updraft that's so powerful that if you, like, throw something off the top of one of these buildings, it will, it will 
blow it right back, right back up. And then he walked over to the ledge and he said, watch. And, and, and he jumped, 80th floor, 70th floor, 60th floor, and then as he got to 50, he started to slow, and then the wind blew him right back up onto the ledge. The, the other guy, he said, that's incredible. He said, could I do that? And the first guy said, yeah, I, I bet you could. And so he climbed up on the ledge and he jumped and fell smack right onto the pavement. The first guy walked over to the bar, ordered another Diet Coke, the bartender looked at the man next to him and he said, dang, that Clark Kent really gets nasty when he drinks. <laughs> I think that's funny because deep inside we all suspect that Superman is actually like that, right? Super on the outside, but not so super on the inside, like us. So if you got him drunk, the truth would come out. That the kindness of Clark Kent is really just an act, and deep inside, Superman is just annoyed as hell at you and me. His patience might run out, and when it does, he may just send you hurtling into the abyss and will then go finish his Diet Coke in the Sky Lounge or the forest. Sometimes when soup was stopping crimes, I bet he was tempted to just quit and turn his back on man. Join Tarzan in the forest. But he stayed in the city and kept on changing clothes in dirty old phone books, booths till his work was through had nothing to do. Hey, when is a Savior's work through? Till his work was through, had nothing to do but go on home. Superman never made any money, saving the world from Solomon Grundy, and sometimes I despair the world will ever see another man like him. You know, if, if one despaired enough, I suppose they might just give up on Superman, run off with Lex Luthor or Solomon Grundy, figuring that they're all just really the same once you got a good look at their heart. So let's pray. Father, um, I want to pray what we prayed last week, that through the preaching of your word, and the fellowship of your saints, you would reveal your heart, the Superman. In his name we pray. You okay? Amen. You okay? Uh-huh. Uh, good night. Oh, good night! Superman. Lois? Lois? Anybody home? Hello? Lois? Uh, hi. Can I come in? Oh, yeah. Lois, for goodness sake, didn't you hear me knocking? Uh-huh. <laughs> Last week we talked about the fact that all of us are just a little bit like Lois Lane. We're always looking for Superman and we don't know where to find him. Wouldn't it be cool to be in a community group, talking about community groups, with a Superman? The only problem is that all my friends are rather pathetic, like Alan Parsons and Andrew Trawick and Mark Rinke. Pathetic like Clark Kent, like, like me. When I was a boy, uh, to me, my dad was Superman. He pastored a large church. Everyone seemed to love him. And unlike at school, uh, when I was at church, everyone seemed to love me. It, it was home. During my sophomore year of college, some people complained to the ecclesiastical authorities that my dad preached too much about Jesus and too little about 
issues and uh, complained that the church wasn't growing. And then I watched them slander my dad, put him on trial, and then after 14 years, kick him out. And my dad didn't stop him. Made me awfully angry at, at them. And, and although I've had a hard time admitting it, I think awfully angry at my not-so-super-superman dad. Years later, God really miraculously revealed to me that I'd gone to the ministry because I wanted to fix my dad, who seriously, when I was younger, he had glasses just like Clark Kent. But anyway, I wanted to fix my dad, and I hated the church. And I was a pastor at the time. I heard God audibly, only time it's ever happened to me, and this is what he said, Peter, you don't love my bride very much, do you? Well, last week we noted that dreaming of the Superman can be pretty hard on Clark Kent. My goodness, Lois, didn't you hear me knocking? Behold, I stand at the door and knock, says the Superman in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. It was dreaming our dreams of the Superman that led the Jews and really all of us to cast Jesus out of the city and nail him to a tree. Why? Because he looked just a little bit too much like Clark Kent. St. Paul referred to Jesus as the Superman, that is the eschatos man, which means the last man or last Adam, uh, Superman, the ultimate man, eschatos man. The first man, Adam, became a living soul or psyche, writes Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam, the eschatos man, Superman, became a life-giving spirit, pneuma, breath. That happened on the tree in the middle of the garden where we broke his psyche, the cross. Well, this was our first point last week. First point, if you expect the people in your community group to be Superman, well, you'll probably end up crucifying Clark Kent. They're not Superman. Uh, but this was our second point. Superman is in the people in your community group. He is rising from the dead within them and filling them like light fills a shadow or substance fills absence or good fills evil or grace fills sin, transforming it into worship. Each one is like a shitty manger that contains the Christ child. Or a dark tomb in which the light of the world uh, rises on Easter morning. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that dreaming your dreams of the Superman, it, well, you're liable to crucify Clark Kent, but, but Lois, if you just love Clark Kent, especially just love him, Superman's bound to show up. And yet if he does show up, will you trust him? How will you know that the kindness of Clark Kent is not just an act? I mean, if you were drinking with him, let's say, sharing a cup with him at the top of a skyscraper, and he said, you can jump off this tower and the wind will lift you up. Pick up your cross, because if you lose your psyche, you'll find it. Even though you die, yet shall you live. Would you do it? Would you, would you pick up your cross? Would you have faith that he is faithful? How would you know that he's faithful, that he's trustworthy so that you would trust and you would have faith? You know, people with superpowers can be super deceptive. On lockdown, I watched several TV shows and I think some movies all about super heroes with not-so-super hearts who use their superpowers to be super deceptive. You know those shows. If you know Greek mythology, you know that Zeus was always changing form in order to deceive people, especially young women, in order to get whatever it was that Zeus happened to want at, at the time. You can't trust Zeus, okay? You can take, that's a, there's an application point. You can't trust Zeus. And Zeus can't trust you or us. I mean, everyone said that they loved Zeus, but nobody actually loved Zeus. They were all utterly terrified of Zeus. No one could be honest with Zeus or honest with themselves about Zeus. 
And that's why rich people and powerful people are all often the, the, the loneliest of, of all people. They, they don't know, and the people around them don't know if they love them. I suppose that partly explains our third point from last week. Third point, the Superman, there at the bottom, who is infinite in power, is revealed in weakness even the last and the least of these. Think about it. Every superhero, at least every superhero you love, has a weakness, right? And that weakness reveals their heart. The Hulk has anger issues. And, I mean, Bruce Banner just stews about that, right? Uh, Spider-Man is an insecure kid named Peter who wants everyone to like him. I always like Spider-Man for some reason. I could relate to him. Batman is sad. Iron Man is arrogant and know it, and Wonder Woman, well, her dad is a butthead named Zeus. But if a superhero's super weakness is just a super act, then they're actually a supervillain, at least until they acknowledge that fact, the fact of their act. So, there's a big question. Does Jesus have a weakness? Let's ask this question. Does Superman have a weakness? In the movies, it's kryptonite. Or maybe Lois Lane. But does Superman Jesus have a weakness? Well, wouldn't it be sin? Or to be more precise, wouldn't it be us? Listen closely. Jesus doesn't sin, and yet Paul writes, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, it wasn't iron nails or Satan that held the eschatos man, the superman Jesus, to the cross. It was his love for you and the fact that you had sinned against him. So does Jesus have a weakness, and is he faking that weakness? Well, his weakness is at least as real as you. Because aren't we his weakness? And isn't sin, isn't sin your weakness, our weakness? Isn't sin your weakness that becomes his weakness? And isn't all that sin a lack of faith in God? It's hell. His weakness is his love for you, and that's what makes hell for him. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where was Jesus when he said that? Well, we know that he was on the cross, the tree in the garden just outside Jerusalem. And he must have also been in David, King David, because those are the, that's the first line of Psalm 22. It was in King David a thousand years earlier. And I know that he was also in my old friend Elaine. She once screamed those words in agony, and then she saw herself in a vision, die with Jesus, and then rise with Jesus, dress in a beautiful white wedding gown at the base of this tree. Jesus was in David. Jesus was in her. Jesus was in the depths of human agony. Jesus was in us. Jesus was in hell. Hell is believing that you are God-forsaken. It's not having faith in the faithfulness of God. In the, in the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Remember, Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How did Jesus have a different will than his Father? He is the will of the Father, the Word of the Father, the Word of God. Well, at supper, I suspect he drank from our cup, <laughs> even as we drank from his cup. So Jesus, who is the faithfulness of God, descended into the faithlessness that is in each one of us and surrendered our faithlessness, our sin, to God. You see, listen closely, it takes faith to confess your faithlessness to the faithful one, our God. 
He surrendered our faithlessness to God, crying, why have you forsaken me? The psalm goes on to say, well, God had not forsaken him. God hadn't forsaken him, and yet he somehow entered into our fear and our doubt and our shame. He cried, why have you forsaken me? He delivered up his spirit, the life-giving spirit. He died, really died. He lost his psyche, no faking. And now let the revolutionists choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world, carefully weighing all the gods of inevitable recurrence and of unalterable power, writes G.K. Chesterton. They will not find another God who has himself been in revolt. Nay, the matter grows too difficult for human speech. But let the atheists themselves choose a God. They will find only one divinity who ever uttered their isolation. Only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. On the previous page, Chesterton had written this, Christianity is the only re religion on earth that has felt that omnipotence, all power, omnipotence made God incomplete. Christianity alone has felt that God, to be holy God, must have been a rebel as well as a king. Alone of all creeds, Christianity has added courage to the virtues of the Creator. What is courage but faith, hope, and love in a faithless, hopeless, loveless place? On the tree in the middle of the garden, Jesus revealed courage, but not only revealed it, he gave it, his courage to us. <laughs> and that's pretty super, man. The first man, Adam, became a living psyche, writes Paul, soul, psyche. The last Adam, the eschatos, I mean the superman, is become a life-giving spirit. Jesus really died, descended into the tomb that is you, and now God the Father is raising from the dead. You are literally his body. Paul knew that Jesus was not faking weakness. To the, to the Galatians in Lustra, he writes, I bear on my body the scars, the stigmata of Christ. He felt his weakness in his own body, which was now Christ's body. You are Christ's body because he chose to make you his body. Faith, hope, and love in you, courage in you, is Christ rising within you. It takes courage to pick up a cross. It takes courage to acknowledge your weakness. It takes courage to confess your sin. And, and if it's real courage, you won't be proud. You'll be grateful. For you didn't make the courage. God is making you with courage. He's perfecting you with faith, hope, and love. He is making you with his word in human flesh, Yeshua, Jesus. And so to the Corinthians, Paul writes this. Listen closely. God said to me, to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, writes Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. And he had just described his weaknesses in the chapter before. They're, I mean, it's amazing. Flogging, shipwrecks, sleepless nights. And then he writes this. On top of this, my daily anxiety for all the churches. Paul is extremely clear that anxiety, anxiety is, is a sin. It's like the very heart of sin. It's a lack of faith. And Paul is extremely clear that he is a sinner. To Timothy, he writes, I am the foremost. Not was, but am the foremost, the chief of sinners. So, so Paul writes this to the Corinthians, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ would rest on me. When I am weak, astheneo, also translated sick or crippled, when I am weak, then I am strong. So point number three, Superman, who is infinite in power, is revealed in weakness. Point number four, in your community group, all the more gladly, woohoo, boast of your weaknesses. Your community group is not an accountability group. Your community group is not an accountability group where you say things like, oh, I had an hour-long quiet time this week. How long was your quiet time? I challenge you to have longer devotional times like me. 
Your community group is not an accountability group, and it's not a pity party where you whine and complain, sharing your weaknesses, or manipulating with your weaknesses, expecting the people in your community group to be able to fix them as if they themselves are the Superman, and they have that power. Your community group is not an accountability group. It's not a pity party. Your community group is a place to acknowledge your weaknesses together and then wait on the Superman together and then thank him together when he shows up. In other words, it's all about worship. Proskuneo, to kiss at in, in Greek. Okay, now it's time that we read our text. Okay, this is what we preached on last week. There's a second part of that, verse eight. Now at Lustra, which was in Galatia, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lucaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, like the word of Zeus, word of God. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowd. So Paul and Barnabas have fame and fortune. Most pastors at this point would think, wow, things are going exactly according to plan. Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, homoeopathes. We're pathetic, like you. But we bring you good news that you would turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the peoples to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons to satisfy your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely, Paul and Barnabas, scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, supposing that he was dead. So the pagans think he's a god in verse 18. The pagans that think he's a god in verse 18 are now stoning him to death in verse 19. And why? Well, they were persuaded by Jews who had just come from Antioch and Iconium, where Paul and Barnabas, who were also Jews, had just been kicked out of the synagogue. But synagogue isn't the best translation. It's actually a transliteration of the Greek noun synagogue, which simply means assembly or gathering. Jesus told his disciples several times, he said, you will be kicked out of the synagogues. A better translation for synagogue, would probably be church or what we usually mean by church. You see, the synagogue was like Paul and Barnabas's church. But the word translated as church in your Bible is another Greek word that Jesus used to describe the new community that he would build, and that word is ekklesia. It literally means the called out. Well, it becomes obvious in Scripture that the disciples were not only kicked out, they were called out, of the synagogue to form this new community, the ecclesia. The gatherings of this world and all religions that reject God's grace are old covenants. I mean, they are agreements of shared self-interest made by men based on the idea that we are our own salvation. But the ecclesia is a new covenant community, an agreement of self-sacrifice made by God based on the reality that God is salvation, which in Hebrew, you know, forms a word. The word is Yeshua, in English, Jesus. The lie is that you save yourself from God. So listen really closely. The lie is that you save yourself from God, and you need, quote, the church to give you the knowledge to do so. The truth is that God saves you from yourself, 
and plants you in a new community called the kingdom or the new Jerusalem coming down who is his bride and body, what he calls the ecclesia, his church. To worship God is salvation is to sacrifice your old God, which is actually I am my own salvation, or we are salvation, or our group is salvation. To worship God is salvation then is to die to your tribe, to yourself, your psyche, your arrogant ego, because you cannot worship God and yourself at the same time. And that's why they're pissed at Paul. Verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, what disciples? We've read absolutely nothing of disciples in Lustra or Lystra, however you pronounce it. And what are they looking at? They all think Paul is dead. He's been stripped naked. His body's been broken. He's covered in blood. Fourteen years ago, I preached on this passage, and when I did, in the sermon, I said, sometimes a body must be broken for a heart to be exposed. Susan scratched that statement down frantically on a piece of paper as if it wasn't me that was talking, but that I definitely needed to hear what was being said. At the time, Lookout Mountain Community Church had grown from a handful of people to several thousand. I was known as a church growth expert. We had just built a multi-million dollar campus on the side of I-70. I had published two books and had agents. Books sold in Barnes and Noble and, and Walmart, and I had seen some truly amazing signs and wonders. But at the time, I was being investigated by church authorities for hoping that because God is salvation rather than we are salvation, he might just save everyone that's anyone. For as Paul writes to Timothy, God wills all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And you see, what God wills is called reality. Well, they said I could hope it, but I could not believe it was possible. Verse 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lustra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So if anybody wants to wrap you, sure, you out of tribulation, I just think twice about that. That through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every ecclesia, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Fourteen years ago, on the 7th of September, I preached the sermon, broke the bread, and poured the wine. As people were coming forward for communion, I remember Susan was farting around, and I remember thinking, get your act together, Susan. I really need you to be on your best behavior right now. A few minutes later, while I was singing and acting holy, she just suddenly grabbed my arm tight, and I knew something big had happened. She pulled me close, and she said, Peter, I just saw your dad. And that was big, because he'd been dead for three and a half years. She said, Peter, he was standing right in front of us, and Peter, he was so young and so happy and so full of life. Peter, it was like his eyes were on fire. The last I had seen my dad, he weighed like 70 pounds, <laughs> breathing his last breath at 84 years old. But now, you see, he, well, he looked like Superman. She said his eyes were on fire and he had a bowl in his hand. He leaned forward and he said, Peter and Susan, do not be afraid to drink of the cup that the Lord has for you. And then he vanished. Four weeks later, I was put on trial. The week after that, convicted and defrocked. 
because I wouldn't confess that it was impossible for God to save everyone. Some people in power kept the congregation from voting to leave the denomination, and those people wouldn't allow me to return to say goodbye to the congregation. I had never, ever felt so broken, so ashamed, and so weak. I was cast out. But some people gathered round, some of you. And that's how the sanctuary was born. Now, you may have heard me share that last bit about that, that vision, but you have probably never heard me share that it happened at the end of this sermon on Acts 14, 8 through 23. All week, I have honestly been terrified to talk about it because I'm ashamed you might think that I'm Clark Kent, bumbling, incompetent, and weak, and you see, I am. <laughs> I actually am. In the last 14 years, God has made it very clear to me that I cannot grow a church, <laughs> and I once thought I could. Several times my wife has even heard the Lord say, tell Peter he cannot grow the sanctuary. <laughs> Thanks for that wonderful prophetic word. I'm ashamed that you might think I'm Clark Kent, and I'm terrified you might think I'm saying that I'm the Superman, because I'm not. I am so very homoeopathetic, it's pathetic. I can't do Superman, but I also can't deny that Superman is doing me. But more than just doing me, he's doing all of us. He's rising within all of us. You see, it wasn't just Paul's body that was broken. And it wasn't just Paul's body that rose and entered the city. The Superman wasn't in just Paul. It seems that in that small group of disciples that gathered around, there was this, this woman who was the mother of another woman named Eunice, who was the mother of a boy named Timothy, whom Paul refers to as his own son. And check this out, her name was, remember, anybody remember her name? Lois, yeah, that's right. Second Timothy 1.5, is that great? I mean, Lois must have seen that incredible sign and wonder of that crippled man getting up and, and walking that, that got her attention, but made her follow the Superman, but she fell in love with his heart in the broken body of a weak rabbi named Paul. And that love in Lois wasn't just Lois. That was the Superman rising within her. This last Wednesday morning in prayer, I was just really struggling with this whole thing that I had to, I knew I needed to probably talk about that, and I was thinking about my shame just struggling with it, and I think God reminded me of what he once told me audibly. Peter, you don't love my bride very much, do you? See, for years, I thought he meant the institutional church, and maybe in a, in a way, that's true. I thought he meant I, I didn't love the institutional church that broke my dad and would go on to break me. But for decades now, I've been wondering and asking the Lord, Lord, when you said bride, what did you mean exactly? See, I've been thinking that one day his bride will be all humanity made new, that all humanity will choose, because he's given them the will to choose, to walk through those pearly gates that always remain open, the new Jerusalem coming down. I've been thinking that one day his bride is all humanity, but recently I've been thinking that his bride, his bride right now, in space and time, it must be those that know they need him. And so they call on him. And so they surrender to him. What do they surrender to him? Their shame. His bride is not a 501c3 nonprofit corporation registered with the state. I think that might be like, you know, a nice house or perhaps a fancy dress that the bride wears from time to time. It actually covers her shame, but that's not the bride. And you see, I think I always loved that, the building, the budget, the programs, the paycheck, the respect, the crowds, the book publishing contracts, but that's not the bride. 
This last Wednesday morning, I felt like God whispered into my heart, Peter, the bride that you don't love very much is you. <laughs> I shared that with Andrew Trawick at lunch last week on Wednesday. Been meeting with Andrew and Alan in our small group, Jennifer, 29 years now, but getting together with lunch with Andrew for quite some time. I shared it with Andrew, and he said, he said, well, of course, Peter. It's what you once told me. You have to learn to love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves you, the weak, naked, incompetent sinner who is you, the real you. What if the last and the least of these is you? The real you. And whatever you do to the last and the least of these, you do to him. So when you despise your weak self and you hide your weak self, you despise the strength of the Superman and you hide the one he loves. I mean, seriously, how weird would it be if a groom got up at his reception, at his reception dinner, and he said to everyone, man, I just am so grateful for my bride. The thing I love about my bride is, well, she can do this all by, she doesn't need me. She can do life all by herself. She can do it without me. No, the thing that the groom most appreciates in his bride is her awareness that she can do nothing without him, but that with him she can do all things, what can she do? She can actually become one body with him and sometimes, sometimes even give birth to the life that is him, the Superman, the Son of Man, but not by dressing up, only by dressing down. I can't build the sanctuary, but God can build the sanctuary with us. Whether or not there is a 501c3 by that name, because what is a sanctuary? It's not an institution. It's a miracle that happens when just two or three people gather around body broken and blood shed. It's a miracle that happens when together we confess our sin and we remind each other of God's grace. Here or in Twin Lakes, or in New Jersey, remember our friends from last week, or, or in Texas, or in the Philippines, or your living room, or kitchen. It's the miracle of the Superman's weakness that he humbled himself, not only in a body of flesh 2,000 years ago, but in the body of flesh that is us, his sanctuary. So fifth point. Superman's weakness is infinite strength. <laughs> That's the shocker. It's the power of love. God is love, and love binds all things together, in particular, the body of the Superman. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The first man, Adam, became a living soul, a psyche, even trapped within itself. The last Adam, the Superman, is become a life giving spirit. It's the spirit of Christ in you that confesses your need and your sin. And it's the spirit of Christ in your neighbor that tells you you are forgiven. It's Christ in us, battered, beaten, and weak, that calls forth the Christ rising within us with compassion and, and mercy. That is, in, in reality, that mercy in reality is infinite strength. It is relentless love. As far as I know, in the movies, Superman really only made one convert. I mean, he did convert Lois Lane, I suppose, by romancing her as the bumbling, um, rather incompetent Clark Kent, but he converted Miss Tessmacher from outright evil to the very epitome of the good, and he did it with weakness, total weakness. Miss Tessmacher was Lex Luthor's assistant who helped him launch nuclear warheads at California and trapped Superman by placing kryptonite around his neck. 
Miss Tessmacher is utterly intimidated by Superman's power, but in his weakened state, she falls in love with his super heart. Miss Tessmacher. Miss Tessmacher. Please. You can't. You can't just stand there. You can't just stand there and let innocent people, millions of innocent people die. Maybe. Please, please help me to save them. If I help you, you promise to save my mother first? Look, Lois or Jimmy. Oh, but my mother comes first. If you promise me, I believe you because you always tell the truth. I promise. I promise. Why did you kiss me first? If I didn't think you'd let me later. Stand aside now. I wouldn't stay here either. And so in case you didn't see the film, Superman and Miss Tessmacher save the world. Superman asked, why did you kiss me? But the real Superman doesn't have to ask because he has arranged absolutely everything so that you would kiss him. To want to kiss the Superman is salvation. Proskuneo, to kiss at. In Greek, it's also translated to worship. That is my favorite scene in any Superman movie. And this is the very same scene. And that scene is this scene. And he says to us, take and eat. This is my body. And take and drink. This is my blood. The crowd has left. The disciples gather around. Isn't this amazing? You see, even kryptonite is part of God's plan. For it breaks his body and reveals his heart. And nothing is as beautiful as the heart of the Superman who is the very heart of God. Amen. So now just close your eyes for a second. Maybe you listened to all this stuff and thought, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that stuff. 
But I think maybe I kind of sort of like to believe that stuff. That God is love. That his word is good. That his mercy never comes to an end. If that's you, that, that thing in you that just hopes that it would be true, I think that's called faith. And you didn't put that in you. It's a seed. And all the powers of hell can't stamp it out. But now with that seed, with that little bit of faith, see if you can just pray this prayer with me. And don't worry, I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you, but... Just say something like this to God, if you can. Say, God, I think I need to just confess that I'm not my own creator. <laughs> I'm actually not a self-made man, a self-made woman. But I think maybe you created me. And I have to confess that I'm having a really hard time saving me. <laughs> making myself into your image. But I would like you to make me into your image. I'd like you to save me. I'd like to follow. See, there's a word for that, and the word is disciple. And you've been called So in Jesus' name, let that seed grow. And before you know it, <laughs> just when you think you've lost all power, all weakness, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you'll wake up, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be home. I'm just saying, in Jesus' name, Believe the gospel. Amen. If you'd like to come forward for communion, you can still do that. Uh, but you see, I think this is what this whole world is about, why we're walking through this world of brokenness and evil and darkness and shame. It's so that in this place, we could see his heart. And falling in love with his heart, we will follow his heart, and it will change every relationship that we have. And we have community groups as just a way to be in a group with some other people that believe kind of the same thing and to sort of, sort of practice it and to see it, to encourage each other. So if you're not in something like like a community group, two or three people just gathered in his name. Well, we'd love for you to sign up for ones that um, Chris will help us set up. And if, and, and if you don't sign up for one of these, but you are in one, be sure to tell Chris just because it helps us um, care for each other because your community group helps uh, care for you. Um, if you'd like prayer, members of the, Ted will be down front here, right? And uh, he would love to pray with you, but have a wonderful week. And if you get a chance, start reading the book of Romans, okay? In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.